Hello, and welcome to the Profiting from Data podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Ben Zweig, CEO of Revelio Labs, a workforce intelligence company indexing hundreds of millions of public employment records to create the first universal HR database. On this episode, Ben discusses workforce data that is growing with culture scoring and COVID adaptability metrics for the buy side, private equity, corporates, and government. He also lends his voice to the challenge of blending data sets, nuances of public profile data, forward-looking predictions, and much more. Please enjoy this dialogue between Ben and your host, Emmett Kilduff. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the show. Hey, Emmett. Nice to be here. So, you know, analyzing data is all about statistics, quantitative analysis. Uh, How did you get started in the world of data analytics or statistics? I started doing a PhD in economics, which is really, you know, economics at the graduate level is pretty much all statistics. And during that time, you know, taught a bunch of classes in data analysis and, and worked at a quant at a hedge fund, um, a small fund doing emerging markets. So pretty different than uh, what a lot of funds are doing these days, but still analyzing data. And then spent some time doing research in, in labor economics and, and then went to work at IBM in their internal data science group. And there um, led a handful of projects related to workforce management. So that, that's where I got into you know, modern data science, more natural language processing techniques, but all, all really related to understanding the company through, through their employees, through their workforce. So that was kind of my foray into the space. Very good. And uh, is it true that you you were a lecturer all the way through? Yeah, yeah, I kind of was. Yeah, I started uh, I started teaching when I when I began grad school, and just always enjoyed it. Um, so I still I still teach classes um, now. Most recently at NYU Stern in um, in data science and econometrics, and that's just you know it's good to stay stay in academia, have a foot in in that world to know what's going on. Very good. Very good. So uh, you've been in the old data space for a few years now, Ben. Um, of all the use cases you've seen over the years, what, what's the best use case that you've seen? Yeah, th- there are a lot of good ones. One, one stands out to me that I saw recently, and that's something that came out of Glassdoor. They, they had a partnership with MIT where they, they developed a kind of culture scoring for companies. So, so if you think of the, the big five personality traits of a person, they could do that for companies. So they can assess culture on a handful of different dimensions. And the reason why I thought that was so cool is because I think traditionally companies have been, have been evaluated through high-level financial metrics, really you know, measuring their performance, their output. And I think getting into the inner workings of what a company is or the character of a company, that just really excites me. I think that's, uh, there's a lot of room to understand companies more deeply if, if you kind of break down their character and what they're doing and what they're all about. Excellent. Of course, that plays the ESG theme, which is becoming more um, more popular at the moment. So with Revelio's data, um, I'd like to ask you to take us through some examples of how your clients are leveraging your data, profiting from your data, uh, starting with asset managers, then going private equity, corporates, and governments. So feel free to take us through those, please. It's been almost two years since we've been in business. And we've had, and I'd say most of our most of our clients are are hedge funds, 
And I think the most common use case we've seen is really trying to understand the flows of talent in key roles. So, so one key role we get asked about a lot is salespeople. Let's say sales, if salespeople are leaving a company, if we could see that they have a high attrition, that is surely a signal that things aren't going well. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of the canary in the coal mine. And also, also inflows of key roles. You know, people want to know, you know, certain strategic skills, whether, whether a company is hiring those uh, faster than others. And within, within private equity, we see a lot of interest in understanding uh, changing composition of companies. So at, at a kind of earlier stage, um, we expect companies to go maybe from um, more product-led to more sales-led, right? So we expect that the composition of the workforce should change from product focus to sales focus. Uh, we expect geographic uh, concentration to, to evolve as companies are expanding uh, internationally. Uh, that's something that, that often wants to get tracked. Also, also, another interesting use case we see from quant funds is tracking expenses. So we, we, do, we do measure salaries for, for every position. And if you sum up the salaries, that's, a, that's you know, the vast majority of OpEx in a company. And we see a lot of alternative data providers uh, that do a, a good job at predicting top line revenue, but really very few that, that do a good job of predicting OpEx. So, so I think that's something that, um, that you know, if you want to understand, you really have to look at... Um, the, the company workforce. I mean, it's like 75% of expenses. So it becomes really critical. We also, we also see transitions in and out of companies. So some funds are interested, and not just funds, I mean, corporates as well, are interested in where people are coming from when they get hired or where, where people are going when they leave. Even VCs actually are, are interested in knowing where the talent of a small startup has come from uh, and what their exit options are. So those are, those are a handful of use cases. There, there are a few more. I mean, there, there's a bunch on the ESG side. So we track gender ratios. And that's not just for the board, not just um, overall, but we have that by seniority, by role. So gender is particularly important in an ESG context. Uh, we also recently launched an offering that tracks ethnicity. So, so we can we can estimate the um, ethnicity distribution of a company. Also, of course, by seniority. And and recently, we we've started re- we started hearing some requests from clients if we could see veterans. And so now we can track the the share of a company that has veteran status. So it, all these ESG metrics have really been because of requests we've seen from clients. And honestly, you know, when we got the first request, like, can we see gender? We were like, yeah, sure, but why do you care? You know, we had no idea that clients were really interested. Mm-hmm. But um, turns out that that's that's uh, one of our more popular offerings. And how global is your data? It's completely global. So essentially, the the data comes from a few different families of sources. One of those is online professional profiles, and and that is is you know has global coverage, but different rates of participation across different geographies and across different occupations. So without going into too much detail, we, we do, we impose some sampling weights so that we can make sure that even, even in populations where we see lower representation, we, we can get an unbiased estimate of, uh, of what's going on with the complete workforce in a company. So basically, as long as a company has, has uh, you know, 
some meaningful number of employees, we, we, can, um, we can analyze data on that company. So Ben, uh, any examples specifically for governments? Yeah, we've seen a couple different, um, different use cases from governments. One was interesting, but it was actually on the ESG side of things. So one, one, of, the, one of the consulates um, was interested in tracking um, the hiring rates and promotion rates of, of women by industry. And that was kind of interesting. And, and I didn't really think of it as something that governments would be interested in. But, you know, turns out they were. Um, another was really um, in tracking inflation. So you might not think of employment as um, employment data as being particularly predictive of inflation, but since we do track salaries through through labor demand, um, it turns out that that can be a very strong predictor for wage inflation. Um, and we we actually um, published some research a little while ago showing that um, while while the volume of job postings was kind of going up post COVID. Um, salaries were going down by a lot. So I think that's, that's kind of an important thing to consider when, when you're thinking about the, the macro interpretation of job demand. Um, one thing, as, as an economist that, that I, I kind of um, get a little, a little annoyed by is when people talk about demand as just a quantity. I mean, we know that demand is not just a, a measure of volume and that price is also a very important uh, component of demand. So if volumes are going up, um, but, but um, prices are going down, it's, it's, it's ambiguous what's happening to demand. So I think that's, that's something that we really need to consider so that we don't confuse you know, job demand with the quantity of, of uh, job listings. And has COVID uh, been a catalyst for new customers? Yeah, yeah, it turns out it has. Um, so I think um, I think even you know when we talk to friends and family and people outside of the space, uh, employment is a topic that that people think about. I mean, the basically when we talk about economic recovery, we're really talking about workforce recovery, and this is a really unique uh, recession in that it's it's a supply shock to the labor markets. Um, you know. Very different than what we were seeing in the recession of 0809, where it was really a demand shock. Um, so this is really all about um, the workforce dynamics and and the the um, resiliency of labor markets. So I think we're we're seeing a lot more demand from you know macro analysts, but also also those who are who are looking to see how specific companies are adapting. Uh, one thing that we did kind of recently. Um, was was put together a measure of how adaptable a workforce is to remote work. Um, so that that's been that's been something that we put out in um, I think April, so pretty early on, and um, and a lot of a lot of consultancies have been using actually. So consultancies and corporates have been particularly interested in that metric. Very good. Um, as we look forward, uh, what type of work? is on your product roadmap so that you can um, enable all these customers you have to, to do new new use cases? Yeah, so it's it's a really complicated data set. So there's, um, there's always more and more scrubbing and data engineering. And, you know, I think we're, we're just going to keep trying to keep doing what we're doing. But, um, you know, a little 
better, faster, cheaper. That's sort of um, we're, what we're always striving for. But when when I think about long term long term vision, I think we'd really like to. I mean, this is a little bit audacious, but I, hey, I'll go there. I I think we'd really like to kind of do for labor markets what companies like Bloomberg and others have done for capital markets. We'd really like to create a ubiquitous source of intelligence that anyone can look at if they want to understand what's going on with the labor market. And we'd like to have this in a way where it's really granular, really customizable, and and just really easy for anyone to use. And that could be, you know, a hedge fund, that could be an HR team, it could be a recruiter, it could even be a, a, a person looking for a job who wants to know who's hiring and, and the skills and activities involved in a certain job. So, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of want to take it all on. Um, for now, the focus is, um, you know, more more data, faster data, um, more more current data on the workforce dynamics of companies, mostly for investment management, so that people can understand companies uh, deeply through their workforce. And um, maybe flipping around a little bit, but just going back to the source of the data, Ben, I know as a if you're a customer, a lot of the data is sourced from web, web crawl data. Mm-hmm. Um, can you maybe give the audience uh, some comfort just around the legal compliance side of that? Uh, so some people mightn't be aware of, of the nuances there. Yeah, absolutely. There's a very high profile legal case uh, not too long ago between LinkedIn and HiQ Labs um, that really set the precedent for, um, for the legality of online profile data. And what it turns out, I mean, without going into too many specifics about the, the legal case, the, the kind of headline there is that when someone has a public profile, what, what they present is, is really considered a, a broadcasting. It's, it's almost like an advertisement. And, and that is, is properly squarely in the public domain. So really anything, and, and you know, you can see it from searching Google, you know, anything that that a that a search engine has access to is 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 really you know that belongs to the public. So so we think a so first of all, I mean, we we only collect public profile data. You know, if, if anyone has a private profile, that's okay. You know, but we we can't really touch it. But really, the 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 big advantage of using public data um, rather than private data owned by companies is that it's not siloed and we can draw comparisons between one company and another. So when I was when I was at IBM and I was analyzing IBM HR data, um, it was great. You know, you can tell a lot about what's going on in that specific company, but we had no clue what was happening to the workforce at Microsoft or Accenture or whatever other competitors. And and when when we're thinking about strategic planning you know, it really becomes important to think about differentiation. Strategy at its core is about differentiation, and and that that's that's really that's really where it becomes critical to use public data because you can you can link you can link uh, data from totally different sources, totally different companies who use different conventions for job titles and seniority levels, etc. Um, so that that's really the key advantage, I think. And, you know, we've had other um, interviewees talk about the concept of mining to combine or, or blending data sets. That's where the real power is and the stronger signal. It's not easy to combine data sets or, or, or map data sets or have a common symbology. How do you guys go about it? 
it's it's the biggest challenge. It's it's the it's the thing we spend the most time on. I mean, j- just to just to give a little more color into the 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 depth of the challenge. I mean, really, you know, if you think about job titles, they are totally different across different companies. So, you know, Emma, you used to work in finance. You know that being a vice president at a bank is a really different job than being a vice president at at a at a large company. At, at like AT&T or something. Um, so, so we need to detect when the same title means different things. And we also need to detect when totally different titles mean the same thing. You know, we, we need to know that lawyer and attorney are synonyms. So we, we, we have a series of natural language processing models to, to essentially create a mathematical representation of what every job title means. And then we can we can understand when different titles mean the same thing, when the same title across different companies mean different things. And, and basically that uses some some very recent advances in natural language processing. But really, I mean, I think that's I think that's the big potential of, of deep learning and, and deep natural language processing specifically. It's not so much that it you know gives you better predictions, it's really that it allows you to to build a mathematical representation of every entity that you can then use to create clusters of categories. You can create clusters of jobs, clusters of skills, clusters of companies even. And and that is just so powerful. And I mean, it's it's hard, you know, but uh, there's so much potential. And and that's that's something we're really excited about. And do you do all that work in-house? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty pretty foundational to, to what we do. And in terms of mapping that to things like tickers or, or uh, similar um, financial instruments, do you do all that work in-house as well? We, we do most of it in-house, but we subscribe to other data, uh, other data vendors that, that, allow, that sort of track subsidiary to parent companies. So we, we buy data sometimes when we need to, but um, for the most part, that's done in-house as well. Okay, very good. Um, as we look to the future, Ben, um, maybe for the alternative data space, um, and maybe for the employment category, the employment category is one of the 26 categories in Eagle Alpha's taxonomy. Maybe so I'd love to get your predictions for the alternative data space as a whole, and maybe for the employment data category within it. Yeah. Yeah. For the alternative data space as a whole, you know, that's, um, it's a big question, but I, yeah, so so take all this with a grain of salt because I'm sure everyone's got lots of different ideas, but but here's here's kind of my my take on it. I think there are a lot of uh, investors that I think are are assessing companies by by linking um, what they can observe in an alternative data set to something on a financial statement, and and in that sense, they're really just um, you know trying to get an earlier prediction of what is on a balance sheet or what's on an income statement and are essentially doing accounting. It's kind of like, it's almost like glorified accounting. And I think, I think where, where I see this thing going is, is kind of toward an understanding of companies that are not as constrained to traditional financial statements. So I think, you know, from, from an economic perspective, I think there's really three ways to define a company. One is what it produces and how it produces kind of um, on the production side, on the output side of things. And I think that's how companies have been, have been evaluated in the past. 
So, so really in terms of output, uh, the other two ways are one in terms of input, in terms of what resources go into a company. And the other is, is what happens inside? What, what's the inner workings of a company? So, um, so we have the input, what happens inside a firm and what goes out. And I think, you know, th- there's, there's a lot of deep understanding into what, what the output of a company is, but I think understanding what a company actually does, um, sort of the activities, the tools, the, the mechanisms of a company that, that could really, uh, lend a lot of insight into, into what, um, into what a company is, how it's defined, how it can be thought of. And I think, uh, when I think of employment, I really think of the inputs of a company. So what, what goes into what a company does and labor is a big part of that, obviously not the only thing, but you know, the lion's share of, of what a company takes in to do the work it does. And, and I think it's, it's a different way of understanding a company and I think that it takes some getting used to. I think, I think as we're, as we're talking to funds, you know, it takes some, 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 uh, some education into, into how to think about a company as, as a set of, in, of inputs and resources. So I think it is a new data set, but I think, I think a lot of funds are excited about it, but, you know, still have some questions about where does this fit into how I traditionally understand a company? So that's an ongoing process. I think it's not going to happen overnight, but I, I think that the future mode of analysis will involve uh, an understanding of companies that is not constrained to financial statements. I think your comment about understanding the actual company itself um, matches comments from some of our clients that you want to use this data to to see inside the boardroom. Um, you know, instead of just reading reported earnings and all the stuff that's available when it's effectively a commodity, they want information as if they were sitting around the boardroom table and, um, you know, data sets like employment data sets can get that. Yeah. One of my big predictions for the future is that corporates, if not already, will be the biggest buyers of all this data because there's just a lot more of them, frankly. Um, well, any, any thoughts on that? Do you, do you agree with that? Do you have any comments on that? I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, I think that um, corporates have traditionally understood their company through internal data. And of course, they do have competitive insights teams and um, market intelligence teams that do, um, that do subscribe to benchmark data. But I think that's really not well integrated into a company, uh, into most companies these days. But I do see some signs that there's there's more demand in other groups for external data. So so outside of just market intelligence teams, I think within business units, within HR teams, within corporate strategy teams, I think we're we're seeing a little bit more demand for for benchmark data. And I think it really boils down to this to this understanding that if you want to make strategic decisions, you, you have to know how you're differentiated. So I think that there there is a long term pull um, toward that, but you know, having worked in a big company, I can I, I can tell you that things um, don't happen all that quickly. Um, so who knows when that'll happen? But but I'm I'm optimistic. And where have you had the most success, uh, Ben? So far, is it with um, individual departments or people at the at the CTO level? And have you spoke to workforce planning or human resources teams as well? 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think workforce, like people analytics is, is a group that, um, has been tremendously innovative, uh, at least in the last like seven to 10 years. I think they've really, they've really got a seat at the table these days. So people analytics is a group that maybe doesn't have as large of a budget as they, as they should, but, um, but really is, is a, is a champion in the organization for, for using, um, using more data, more advanced, more sophisticated data. Um, so that, that's a unit within, within, um, kind of the CHQ functions business units. I haven't seen as much demand for, but, um, competitive insights and market intelligence teams, I think are, are still the primary buyers of data in, in a company, in corporates, at least from what we were seeing. Yeah. I also think that, um, consultancies are, are a kind of way in, in that, in that consultancies certainly use benchmark data and, and their clients might be a business unit or the C-suite of a company. And so I think when, when those parts of a corporate use benchmark data, I think they're very often working through consultancies. So I think partnerships with consultancies might be the, the short to medium term uh, avenue for alternative data to be used by, by other business units. And how sophisticated are some of these companies? Are, are you seeing that they need to rely on some of these consultancies to turn data into insights? I think it varies a lot. I think it varies a lot. I mean, I think um, I think one of the problems with with the level of sophistication in an organization is that the 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 people in a company that have the most advanced capabilities are in very high demand. So they they've got a million requests on their plate. It's really hard to get their time. So I do think for now there there is a little bit more handheld hand holding maybe a little bit more of a need for custom reports, uh, maybe front-end dashboards. But certainly, I think they're not as advanced as, say, a quant fund or a quantumental fund uh, in, in analyzing huge quantities of raw data. Ben, final question from me. Uh, you've been at this for a few years now. If you were to go back and uh, give yourself advice two years ago when you started the business, what advice would you give yourself? Oh man, that's really tough. There's so much. Hmm. Wow. Wow. I'd say our um I'd say one one thing we would focus on sooner is really the data engineering and data pipelining. I think for us, we went really deep into the advanced statistical modeling and the NLP side of things right away and and didn't really fully anticipate just how how difficult it can be just to just to work on pipelines for these huge quantities of data and just to make sure they're really stable and don't require manual work all the time i mean you know we we have sort of transitioned more to focusing more on data engineering but even now i mean there's there's things we have to do manually um you know it's 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 always it's always an uphill battle and i think data engineering just you know, if you have a really strong data engineering foundation, that can free up resources to do more advanced modeling mm. um, really quickly. So I, I'd focus on that. Very good. Very good. Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. yeah. 
Excellent. Well, uh, Ben, it's been uh, really a pleasure to chat with you and I wish you uh, best wishes with uh, monetizing and profiting uh, your data over the years to come. I think uh, I personally think employment data, a bit like geolocation data, uh, has uh, leveraged COVID as a catalyst this year Mm -hmm. and uh, the future is very bright. Uh, So thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And I'm a big fan of the podcast, so keep up the good work. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. That's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. To learn about Eagle Alpha's solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.